Stone. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're talking about the Middle East, or more specifically, about aid for tens of thousands of refugee children from Syria and Palestine who are living in camps in Lebanon and Jordan. For the past six years, London-based charity Scenario has been providing educational support for these traumatised children and grown-ups as well in a highly unusual way, through theatre and play-based learning. We caught up with one of the founders. Oscar Wood, welcome to Action Pack Travel. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Now, you left Oxford with a first-class degree in English. Teaching theatre in Beirut and Amman seems an unusual career choice. Tell us how this came about. The first project we did was in 2015, and it came about thanks to my very dear friend and co-director, Victoria, who'd been living in the region, both Lebanon and Syria, for several years. Victoria and I had, in the UK led summer camps with children. These were just week-long projects of original theatre, new music, dance, spectacle, puppets, you name it. All of that in a week and performing on the last day to an invited audience. Now, Victoria was in Lebanon at the start of the Syrian crisis, which was 10 years ago now. And she essentially twisted my arm to come out and pilot the same week-long project in Lebanon, one in a Palestinian refugee camp, one in a Syrian refugee camp, to see how it went. So that was our that was our kind of humble beginnings. And the following year, me and my partner Nakia, my partner, my romantic partner, but also my partner in work, we took the decision to move full time and try to see if we could make it work year round. That was the beginning of scenario, just visiting in the summer. And then the following year in 2016, Nakia and I moved out full-time in order to see if we could make scenario work all year round. So not just these small projects, but starting to build a program of projects running all year round of theatre, music, play-based learning. And what sort of impact have you had? How many children have you managed to help from the refugee camps? Well, we've reached 37,000 people, and that's not actually just children. So we also work with young people and women, and also not just refugees, but also importantly, Lebanese and Jordanians, many of whom are just as impoverished or as vulnerable as refugees. I mean, it's really important to us to work with those host communities. And in fact, some of our projects, especially our theatre projects, focus on cohesion between both sets of communities, because obviously there can be, it's not a, it's not a rule, but there can be tensions there. And theatre is a great tool for social cohesion, particularly. And I should imagine that in both countries, the level of education is pretty slim. Yeah. In Lebanon, only 30% of children go to public school and the majority actually attend private schools. But the majority of those private schools are extremely low income. Parents pay a kind of nominal amount for their children to go to school. And yeah, as you say, the general level of education or the general style of education is perhaps what we might call quite didactic, let's say. And so the role of scenario is particularly to increase interactivity. Um, And when we're working with very young ones, we focus on bringing play into the classroom through games and songs and stories. Another thing which is worth saying is that when there's a big influx of, of refugees into a country, obviously lots of new schools have to 
have to start from scratch. And therefore, you get many, many teachers who suddenly find themselves with this new employment, but no experience really of teaching in the past. It's kind of a almost a default employment if a school happens to open in your neighborhood. So we're working with many teachers who've only been in it for a year or two. And what kind of theatre? I can imagine it's not Shakespeare. I mean, it's uh, what kind of theatre is it? All of our theatre is devised. So that means that when we arrive in the room with, you know, 30 children or 15 teenagers, we don't actually know what's going to happen next. So we might begin with a very small stimulus, like, I don't know, a poem or perhaps a theme like the ocean. And we throw it over to them and, and see what ideas they come back with in improvisations, games, storytelling. And inevitably, this is a platform for some of these people to tell their own stories, perhaps for the first time, especially a, you know, a public platform. So we as directors and facilitators are taking their stories, but also, you know, encouraging them to be creative and artistic. So not necessarily, not necessarily just putting those stories on a stage, but encouraging creativity and using dramatic device and weaving it all together in something that ultimately is going to be entertaining, compelling. So what about language? Do you speak Arabic? Yes, I do. So when I'm working uh, in Lebanon or, or training teachers or working with children, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working in Arabic. Yeah, I applied myself hard upon arrival to learn it. That, but that was, to be honest, a big motivation for me going. I kind of wanted to challenge myself to see if I could work in another language. And I did actually start a little bit before kind of going to um, SOAS in London, doing a kind of beginner Arabic classes. And it's something that I've, I've really loved. And even now I'm back in the UK, uh, I still work for Scenario. So, so I'm still on Zoom doing lots of stuff, stuff in Arabic. Did you have any experience in teaching drama before? Yes. So I had been teaching theatre and music in East London for, for about 10 years. I was leading lots of choirs. I was working in primary schools, secondary schools. I was a classroom teacher. I was an out of classroom teacher. I'd been training teachers as well. So I'd had quite a wide experience of, of delivering the arts. Yeah. And I guess part of my reason, uh, my selfish reason for wanting to move was for the next challenge. And what age of children does it start from? Well, when we're working with teachers, we're often working with teachers who are in kindergarten. So this is, you know, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. We start uh, working with their teachers, getting them to introduce these play-based activities in order to deliver their curriculum. And we go, well, we go right up to, especially with our women's projects, right up to kind of 60 plus. And so in some of our theatre projects, we actually kind of have an intergenerational thing going on, which is really exciting. So, you know, a woman in her 60s working with a kind of, let's say, a 19-year-old young woman. And that's another interesting dynamic. So are you welcomed into the camps? Yeah, there is usually a lot of enthusiasm for what we're doing, and particularly a desire to understand how we're doing what we're doing. And that was actually a big part of why we decided to come back and try to turn it into something sustained and permanent because people were asking, well, how, how did you do this theatre thing in a week? How did you get from A to B? So part of the motivation was always to try to build the skills and capacity to make theatre, to lead play-based learning in the communities we're working in. And every project we do, if we're working with 12 children and two facilitators, we'll often have a trainee with us learning how to do that themselves. Is it just drama or is it dance and singing as well? Yeah, multi multi-discipline 
work is really important to us. So if we're doing a piece of theatre, we encourage, well, both both the directors we work with and, and our participants to bring physical theatre into it, dance into it. And actually, that's kind of an important part of telling these stories in a, as in telling their stories in a, maybe in a non-direct way, because obviously, as soon as you're moving and dancing, you tend to be taking things slightly into the abstract. And that's, that's interesting for us because we're, we're pushing participants kind of way of communicating to become maybe less direct, maybe more metaphorical or allegorical. So yeah, multidiscipline is is super important for us. And in fact, at the beginning, also, we don't do this anymore, but I used to lead choirs because that was leading choirs is very much what I used to do in London. So I was leading, you know, 30 strong choirs, often with groups of children. It was a steep learning curve for me as well, learning the music of the region, which uses a very different musical vocabulary from a European choral tradition. So that was, along with the language, kind of getting my head around different modalities and scales was a very steep learning curve, but very enjoyable. I'm definitely not there yet. I presume a lot of the children have had horrific experiences in Syria before they get to the refugee camp. That must be difficult. Yeah. And I think when I started working, especially, I was more sensitive to it. And I mean, as ever, I guess it's the same being a doctor or um, any work like that where you're coming into contact with traumatic situations. You do slightly desensitized to it, which is probably necessary. I mean, it's worth saying that in London, I'd work with very vulnerable communities as well. So I wasn't unused to trauma. One thing I noticed, particularly in children who were, let's say, 11, 12, it was clear they were taking on kind of carer responsibilities at home and bearing a lot on their shoulders. I would just notice small behaviors like, I don't know, hand wringing or fidgeting that looked to me like behaviors of much older sort of women or men, but born in these young or or carried in these young bodies. I used to find that upsetting. And you were based in Beirut, mainly? Yeah, based in Beirut, which is a very high octane city. It's busy, it's noisy, and it's like a city of small villages, I would say. As you know, Lebanon has got uh, a very diverse set of religions. And even within one religion, let's say Christianity, you've got Orthodox, Syrian and Catholic and Maronite. And each area of Beirut is like a little microcosm. Um, and you move sort of 20 meters to your west, to the west, and you suddenly feel like you're in a totally different part of town. And if people don't recognize you, they kind of want to know who you are, explain yourself. And at the same time, people are super friendly. But yeah, Beirut, it kind of felt like a constant learning curve. The city is so dense with history and especially politics. Um, and every day someone's pointing out something new, you know, oh, you see that bridge? Yeah, that was bombed by Israel in 82. And then they couldn't work out whether the Druze or the Christians were going to rebuild it. And that's why it's still half finished. You know, every day you sort of feel like you are absorbing more information about the city. And I don't feel like you ever really get to the bottom of it. Have you felt threatened or endangered at any stage during all those years? With one exception, which I'll come to in a minute. I don't think so. I would say that day to day, you know, Lebanon is a really safe place in terms of crime. For example, I mean, my partner, Nakia, she always says that she feels safer wandering home at night than she does in London. I mean, obviously it's true that there's been a recent civil war and another war um, in 2006. There are political protests. Sometimes you spot a gun around or hear a gun, probably fired in celebration, most likely. But, you know, the reality is 
well, the greatest threat is 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 from its own government through neglect, which we obviously saw memorably last year, or very occasionally, you know, foreign powers and proxies. But day to day, it's a safe, welcoming country. And if there's danger coming in general, you you know, you know about it in advance. And what were your living conditions like? Yeah, in terms of living conditions, it's quite a hard question to answer because there is such serious inequality in the country. These days, 50% of the population sits below the poverty line, but then you'll wander down a kind of fashionable street in Beirut and people are eating expensive sushi. So it's tricky to answer, but no, the reality is day to day, there are electricity cuts and water shortages for everybody. Everyone owns a generator. The country still runs on diesel power stations, which which is a ridiculous situation, particularly since there have been offers to the Lebanese government to build gas power stations, but political dysfunction has stopped that from happening. So living conditions are yeah, definitely affected by the lack of infrastructure that's been built in the country. How about the food? How did you find that? Yeah, I mean, Lebanese food, I think, is famous uh, all over. And obviously, there's the stuff we know from restaurants here, you know, the meze and hummus, halloumi, shawarma, those kinds of things. But I think the thing you discover in Lebanon is the home cooking, or akil al-bayt is the phrase in Arabic, which you don't discover till, you know, you're invited into someone's home. And it can be very localized. I remember once I was up in a village in the mountains and (laughs) I was assured not only that the dish I was eating wasn't cooked anywhere else in Lebanon or Syria, but even the root vegetable that was in the dish didn't grow anywhere else except for on this mountain. So I'm not sure how much I credit that story. But yeah, it's very localized and everyone has their own specialized recipes. You mentioned no dangerous experiences with one exception. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the, the Beirut explosion uh, last year. I wasn't actually living in Beirut at the time. I just happened to go back to visit to lead some training. I was in an, a sort of art centre within a kind of black box theatre space, leading a workshop to about 20 teenagers, older teenagers and young people. And we were probably two kilometers away from the blast site. But if you've seen any of, in any of those pictures, you'll know that two kilometers isn't really far enough. I mean, I'll, I'll say now that no one we were with was seriously hurt, but we were, yeah, I mean, we were midway doing quite a kind of joyful drama exercise. There was actually a smaller initial blast, which rocked the room. I think at that stage, I guess I thought it might be a a bomb, maybe in the distance. And then there was the much more serious blast, which was a surreal moment. I mean, I I remember the, the room seemed to kind of move in on itself. All four walls kind of came towards me felt like kind of something from a Christopher Nolan film, like Inception or something. And also I was, I mean, we were all particularly scared with that second blast as I guess we thought we were in something, I don't know, an an airstrike or shelling or something. So that's when people really started panicking. I mean, I was nominally in charge of this of this workshop. And I had teenagers there, some of whom I taught actually, um, some Palestinian teenagers who I've taught since they were, well, I guess sort of five years ago. So, you know, I did, I did feel very responsible for their safety. And there was a lot of panic and running, you know, eventually we, we got everyone out safe. I definitely didn't feel like (laughs) I was really off my teacher training handbook. I don't know what, didn't know what the right thing to do was. I was actually with some Syrian people my own age. So I was actually very much looking to them as I knew they'd been in similar circumstances before and they knew what to do, you know, get against a big supporting wall, wait when there's no more noise, then get out. 
we got everyone into cars and and home safely but yeah it was very shaken obviously we all were. but in particular because you had no idea how far away it was or what was going on precisely and nor did the rest of beirut and that car drive uh, I, I then drove back to my partner nakia who was with my co-director victoria and that car drive was crazy i, I mean people were setting up roadblocks in the road um there were people I saw a few kind of guns out because people didn't know what was happening that, you know, they thought perhaps they were under invasion, which is not something Lebanese are unused to, you know, they've seen it before. So they thought maybe that was coming again. And there was just glass and rubble everywhere. I mean, I can't, I can't believe I didn't get a puncture, but yeah, it was very, it was frightening. In your free time, did you travel around at all? Yeah, a lot. I mean, Lebanon's only the size of Wales, but much like its history and politics, it is dense with stuff. I mean, it's famously you can uh, the cliche is you can ski in the morning in the mountains and then uh, swim in the afternoon, which I actually did when my parents came to visit. So I was very pleased about that. So it's got extraordinary natural beauty. For me though, I what I love is is the old cities. There's Saida in the south or Sidon is the kind of English name. And up north there's Tripoli and they have beautiful hammams, bath houses and Mamluk mosques and you can get really lost in those souks and there's, you know, an ancient tradition of soap making and that's my sort of favorite thing to do is get a bit lost in one of those cities and chat to chat to people and inevitably end up drinking coffee with them and yeah. And then after Lebanon, you went to Jordan. We set up in Jordan at the same time. So I was visiting Jordan, but I never I never actually lived in uh, Amman, in the capital. Um, but I did visit a lot. It's a very different sort of country, even though it's pretty much next door. It's definitely a slower pace of life. And it feels kind of liminal, somewhere between the, the sort of Levant area, which I guess is, you know, what sort of Syria, Lebanon, Palestine... Uh, and the Gulf down south. So Jordan kind of has beautiful green areas and nature reserves, but then it's also got a lot of desert. And it's got a much stronger Bedouin culture as well. I very highly recommend it as a holiday. It's also a very easy holiday. Definitely not somewhere to be um, intimidated by. It, it's a brilliant place to visit. There's Petra, the old ruins, and Wadi Rum, which is the amazing desert in the south, castles, Roman ruins. It's an amazing place. So now that you you can't go to any of these places because of COVID. COVID has intermittently shut down both countries, but it's actually for Scenario, it was our most impactful year last year, despite the lockdowns. We did a big distance learning program using activities from our play-based materials that was partly commissioned by some big NGOs. So we often work with much bigger fish than us, like the International Rescue Committee or World Vision. So we've reached, I think last year we reached 10,000 children just through our distance learning stuff. And then we've also moved our theatre totally online. So we're able to do the sessions on Zoom and then participants are sending us films of themselves on WhatsApp. Jordan and Lebanon are very much WhatsApp lovers. The country seems to run on WhatsApp. Um, so that's been a great tool for us during this time. And then we have editors cutting together everyone's videos. And so we're still producing these sort of pieces of theatre, which are kind of films at the same time. So tell us about the funding of Scenario, when you obviously very humble beginnings, but you've managed to raise quite a lot of money in order to do all your projects. Yeah, at Scenario, we're very lucky to have quite a diverse income stream. So we have philanthropy from our very generous donors. We also apply 
and are occasionally successful for you know, institutional grants. Some of those are from government or embassies. Some of them are from arts foundations or other institutions. And then we also generate our own income through selling our services sometimes, whether that's going and doing a piece of theater with the partners, you know, beneficiaries, or we have our play-based learning stuff, which is actually available on an app. So we'll go and train a school or an NGO in using all of these play-based learning tools. So we have quite a diverse stream of income. So you train locals to, to teach as well, to teach drama? Yeah, absolutely. Every, every, all the time we're trying to build capacity in local facilitators, directors, and then working with teachers as well in school to, to do what we're doing. And I mean, you know, I, I'm sitting in London now, so all of this work is happening, led by Lebanese, Jordanians, plus, of course, um, Syrians, Palestinians, all based in the country, which I guess is why I was able to to return here. So where do you see yourself going over the next five years? <laughs> I find that difficult to answer, but I, I I miss working directly with children. And I think this happens a lot in a lot of professions. You You do move away from why you started doing what you're doing. So whether I stay with Scenario or not, I'd like to go back into the classroom at some point, that's for sure. So if people want to get in touch, maybe to help or to donate, how's the best way for them to do that? Well, that would be great. Well, our website is scenario, www.scenario.org. And scenario, by the way, I should point out, is spelled S-E-E-N-A-R-Y-O. It's actually it's sort of a transliteration of the Arabic word, which means script. So it kind of has a double meaning. But we're also on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us there and Twitter and you can donate on our webpage. So yeah, please do. Please do check us out. Oscar Wood, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Action Back Travel today. And we wish you the very best of luck with the future with Scenario. Thank you very much, Felice and Peter. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. And I am you It's just a crazy storm